From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're a runner or have friends who are runners, you've probably heard about a feeling of euphoria known as a runner's high. Today, I'm going to talk about this with two research partners, one who is in the HealthLink on Air studio and one by telephone. Dr. Frank Middleton is with me in the studio. He's an associate professor at Upstate with multiple appointments in neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, pediatrics and psychology and behavioral sciences. And then we have Dr. Steve Hicks, who's an Upstate graduate, who's now a pediatrician at Penn State College of Medicine. Thank you both for agreeing to chat about this. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, both of you are runners. Uh, Have either of you experienced the runner's high? Yeah, I I believe that I have on multiple occasions, although um, probably on some of those occasions, I didn't realize that I was experiencing it until later. Huh. Okay. So it is a real thing. It's a real phenomenon. I believe so. And I think if you ask most uh, most runners who do long distances, they would agree. Now, is it is it just runners or are there other endurance athletes that might experience something similar? I think that it's uh, believed to occur with any form of endurance exercise, although perhaps certain activities may predispose you to it more than others. There's certainly studies out there exploring a um, exercise-induced high from long-distance cycling. Oh, okay. So one of the things I would add to that is uh, the idea that it is a, a runner's high is a little bit of a simplification. So there are some people who would experience a little bit of euphoria that they would easily recognize as a runner's high. But there's other components to it. Sometimes it's just uh, a feeling like you're in the zone and you lose a sense of time. Or if a feeling like your your mood is, is elevating a little bit and things just don't bother you as much. And so these are also things that might fall under the umbrella term of a runner's high. And if you consider all of those things together, yes, I've also experienced those on occasion, but I have to admit as you get older, they seem to be a little less frequent and you look forward to them if if those moments do happen. Uh, I think because you have other aches and pains that are creeping up and um, it might be easier to experience it when you're younger and fitter and certainly well-trained. And I have heard, as Steve indicated, certainly athletes in other sports like endurance swimming also report to the sensation of the equivalent, a swimmer's high or something like that. And as Steve mentioned, cyclists. So I think any time you're engaged in a repetitive type of activity that is aerobic and involves at least modern intensity, you might be able to trigger this broadly defined term of a exercise-induced high. Because you hear about runners who just, they feel better after they've gone for a run. But is that a high necessarily, or it's parts of it maybe? Well, Steve, you actually assessed in this particular study the post-run sensation. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, I, I think we tried to standardize the way that we identified a runner's high in this study. And we did that by basically dividing the sensations, the good sensations you get from endurance exercise into four categories. So the first is 
anxiolysis, so sort of a, a relief of some anxiety. A second category would be analgesia, feeling um, lost sensations from pain that you a lot of people associate with running. A third would be sedation, so just this sort of relaxed kind of in-the-zone uh, experience where uh, you almost, I want to call it sleepy, but you certainly just, you feel relaxed. And then the fourth would be euphoria, um, so just kind of like that high feeling um, that you get where you're on top of the world, you feel invincible. And, and then we tried to kind of look for ways to measure those four experiences, either through um, a report of symptoms from the runners in our study or physiologic measures. Now, and I want to say, I mean, this is a study that was published in the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, um, and you looked at collegiate runners. These are athletes that have been running for all through high school and before, right? Yeah, so they're they're pretty tight age range uh, between 19 and 21 years old. Most of them had been running for eight years or so. Um, they were running on average somewhere between 40 and 70 miles a week, and these are the kind of runners that could go out and run a 15 to 18 minute 5k. Um, so they are they're not what we'd call elite athletes but they're certainly um, faster than and a little more dedicated than maybe your average uh, run-of-the-mill runner. Okay. And uh, what, what did you find? How did you decide to come up with a measurement for these four things that you're going to measure? First, we looked to see if anybody who's ever studied a runner's high before had, had done this um, so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. But unfortunately, uh, in our searches of the medical literature, we could not find a single study where somebody had tried to standardize identification of a runner's high. It was really surprising to me that many of the studies previously done to figure out what molecules in your body cause a runner's high had simply taken um, adult male runners, usually, and had them run for an hour and then just look to see what changed, regardless of what their run experience was like. Um, or, or conversely, they had taken a set of mice and had them run on a treadmill and then put them in this contraption called an elevated plus maze to see if they come out in the daylight. And if they did that, they, the researchers sort of assumed that they weren't as anxious and they had probably achieved a runner's high. So um, sort of surprising to me, at least, the way in which runner's highs have been characterized in previous studies. Did you find, were there previous studies that, that explain what causes it and what's happening in the body? Yes, and most of those studies uh, take an approach where they start off with a very identified hypothesis. Uh, for instance, endorphins cause a runner's high. And then they seek to measure um, just endorphin molecules in their mouse model or their adult male runners. Um, and if it's an animal model, perhaps they'd gone back and in very, sometimes very elegant ways um, manipulated the system that uh, releases endorphins in the body. Um, but very few 
In fact, no studies that we could find had taken the agnostic approach that Frank and I like to use in, in much of our research, where we sort of, we entered this without any preconceived ideas. We were going to just look at all of the transcripts in the body that changed with a runner's high and let the data sort of lead us down the pathway of what's causing a runner's high in these athletes. So we looked predominantly at pathways that have been identified in in previous studies, but we looked at multiple pathways. So the ones we were most interested in were um, opioid signaling, which is essentially endorphins, endocannabinoid signaling, that's like your body's endogenous marijuana pathway, and uh, GABA signaling, where the three that sort of emerged in our study as being tied to a runner's high sensation. I don't understand what any of that means, though. Is that does that all have to do with endorphins or, or not? So, so opioids are like endorphins. So, um, basically, opioids—it's uh, sort of like a term that often used to describe medicines that we put in our body to give us euphoria. But your body makes them too. So, that's that's endorphins, and they are in our study associated with the runner's high, but they're not the only molecules, they're the only pathways. So we also saw changes in endocannabinoids. That's a different signaling pathway um, that can give you a high sensation. So I would add that if you consider where these pathways are in the body and in the nervous system, uh, we know that they play an integral role in regulating the sensations both of pain and of the appreciation of time perception, for example. Um, opioids, the endogenous opioids, are present in the level of the spinal cord. And if you have a painful stimulus, a muscle cramp or something like that, the opioid system is capable of actually shutting off those signals and preventing the sensation of pain from reaching the brain. You also have a backup system that's actually in the central nervous system itself at the level of the cerebral cortex where the opioids can act again and they can produce a essentially the sensation that the pain doesn't bother you at all. Even though you might be able to report some discomfort, it's not going to bother you in the least. You'd know the sensation was there, but you're totally fine with it. So these central areas are the same areas that people have shown in brain imaging studies that are activated when somebody is engaged in what we call mental stress and mental stress associated analgesia is a real phenomenon. So these central sites, some of these in a, an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex are enriched for opioid signaling. And if you can activate those areas, then you might not care as much about the pain that you would be experiencing or the discomfort that you would be experiencing. The endocannabinoid system, that is something that's present in the cerebellum at very high levels, and the cerebellum is involved in time perception. And so those two components of the runner's high, the appreciation of time, their sense of time, and disregarding it, sort of losing track, being in the zone, and then the appreciation of pain are going to be affected if you're touching on the endocannabinoid and the, and the endogenous opioid system. 
So this system you've described, is this, does every human have this system or do elite athletes have a, a better system, a more fine-tuned system? That's a great question. I don't think we have the answer to that. Certainly everybody has these systems. Some people are more sensitive than others. Uh, their tone, their built-in level of signaling in these systems differs the same way that people have a different predisposition for drugs of abuse that actually play off the same systems, the opioid system and the cannabinoid system. So if people differ in their predilection for drug abuse, I think we can safely say they might differ in their predilection for experiencing runner's high. So my next question is, um, if everyone maybe has the potential, perhaps, to have a runner's high, what can we do to make sure we get one? I'll turn that question back to the doctor. So we didn't really set out to sort of determine the factors that lead to a runner's high or make a runner's high more likely to occur. Um, so, But we can do a secondary analysis of our data where we compare differences uh, between the runners in the study who achieved a runner's high and the runners who didn't. Uh, for the most part, those two groups were very similar. So females weren't more or less likely to have a runner's high. Um, their, the participants' body mass uh, or weight wasn't more or less likely to be related to a runner's high. Their diet didn't seem to have much effect on it. But the, the one factor that was um, almost significantly different between the two groups was the times that the time that since they last ate before their run. So on average, the group that had a runner's high had eaten about one and a half hours before their long run, and the group that didn't had eaten on average about four and a half hours before their long run, meaning that perhaps if you have a nice uh, fresh glucose load in your bloodstream from a recent meal, uh, you might be more likely to achieve that elusive runner's high. So it might be worth trying at least. Absolutely. Sure. And, and one thing to also point out is the molecules that we're measuring, um, microRNAs, which regulate the expression of mRNAs, um, there's even been some interest in potentially seeing if, if something of, of this nature would be appropriate um, for pre-workout um, consumption, microRNAs that you would intake in the form of particular plants or foods um, might be able to steer you toward the higher probability of experiencing uh, a runner's high. But that is uh, ex exploration that we have yet to open up. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing this study. I, it got a lot of publicity when it came out recently. Um, runner's World, it's all over. I think if you just Google um, Steve Hicks and Frank Middleton and Runner's High, there's all sorts of things that will come up. So I appreciate you taking the time. My guests have been Dr. Frank Middleton, an associate professor at Upstate, and Dr. Steve Hicks, a pediatrician and researcher at Penn State College of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.